Welcome everybody to another episode of Amplify Your Business. Today I am talking to Andrew Ambrosiachuk. Did I get that right, Andrew? You got it. Okay, awesome. CEO of Hydra Survey. So I'm excited today to dig into your backstory, Andrew, because I think that there's a lot of people that can relate to you in terms of, you know, just some of the challenges that you've had as you've been growing your business, as well as, you know, the insecurities that we all have as entrepreneurs, as we are launching a business and really trying to, you know, overcome those challenges that we are going through and some of the naysayers that maybe pop up. But before we do that, I want to ask you, what are three things that every entrepreneur, in your opinion, based on your experience, what are three things that they should know? Thanks. Thanks very much there for the introduction, Lance. And uh, I, um, I just want to let you know I'm super happy to be on the show here today. And uh, I gave this a little bit of thought here, the, uh, the three things that every entrepreneur should know. And I probably had a list of, of 50 things. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I think we right? all do. Yeah. But, <laughs> The, the biggest things that came to mind for me were uh, uh, at, at an early stage, you, you should learn to focus, um, mm. focus and, and use your time wisely. Um, find out when you're the most productive and you can be at your best and uh, use that time to work on your business. Uh, I believe that 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 is super critical. And I wish I had learned that years ago. Um, but uh, just that simple practice has really um, helped me to, to um, see a lot more uh, get done in my business. Yeah, that's great. Second, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, the, 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 second, uh, the second thing that I, I thought about here was um, it can get pretty lonely as an entrepreneur. And so I think if you can find community um, and, and also mentorship uh, at an early stage, that's super important because... Um, you know, but bouncing things off of uh, friends and, and maybe family is not not always um, the right thing to do, um, just because they they may not uh, be the best ears to 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 help with stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so having a community of like minded people and also um, you know a mentor that has been through it already is is really helpful. And then uh, the the last thing that um, that that I thought about was, uh, you know, for for me, I, I'm an engineer and I never really worked in sales, and so I was like, I wish I could sell. I wish I knew how to sell. I wish I could have learned how to sell earlier. Because ultimately, as entrepreneurs, you know, even though we might be passionate about something or a specific aspect of our business, we have to be able to sell. And yeah. so, uh, learn sales, understand your numbers and your cash flow, and and start crushing that early. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, and it, that isn't something that could ever be, um, you know, understated or sorry, overstated enough, I think, when it comes to really as founders, as the entrepreneur, you have to be always selling. And so I remember, you know, I got my start in the business world, really in a sales position. And so I learned those lessons early. And one of my mentors there was, and you hear this all the time is ABC, always be closing, right? And so, and and it, that's nothing more true for an entrepreneur, because you have to have that business coming in. And if you can't get that cash flow rolling, you can't, you can't grow your company. You can't fuel it. And so, um, yeah, the better sales person you are, the better uh, you're going to be as a business person, probably. Now, yeah. having said that, though, with somebody who's an engineer, um, so a background, I think a lot of engineers can be just incredible salespeople because they have a mastery of the of the finer points of the technical aspects. Now, where 
and I don't know if you can relate to this, but uh, one of the challenges that, that I see, though, with a lot of people who have an engineering background who then are in a sales role is oftentimes they'll focus on the feature set as opposed to really understanding that people aren't buying features. They're really buying the, the solution, the benefit, the, the result of what that feature set is going to give. And so um, is that something that uh, you struggled with in the early days, too, where it's just you love the technology because this is something that you were, you know, obviously passionate about? Um, and uh, so then you talk more about that and less about what the outcomes are or how to, how absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it was one of those things where, um, when I, when I understood the solution to myself, I was more or less trying to sell, uh, features of the solution. Like th this is kind of yeah. why you need it because of a, B and C rather than just selling the overall benefit of the solution. And yeah. uh, oh, I can get so wrapped up in technical details; it's not even funny. And yeah, um, I, I've seen that a lot too with with other engineering colleagues that um, you know they they can maybe get a little bit too wrapped up when it is a sales case. But um, uh, as an engineer too, it's uh, we've been able to learn. I've been able to learn and uh, really <laughs> change the way that uh, my conversations go. And so if I am um, yeah. you know doing sales, I can focus on. Uh, really hammering out what's important to that client. What do they want to know about, about our, our service uh, versus, you know, if I am uh, maybe doing some after sales support, uh, maybe I am talking a little bit more about uh, some technical, technical aspects of the service we provided. Yep. Um, so still requires me to wear multiple hats, but totally a big thing. Um, you know, if, if you don't have a sales background, um, try to somehow get one. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And and so this is one of the things too is that that technical knowledge um, is something that if you have the sales ability with the technical knowledge, well, then you become, I think, a super salesperson. And so uh, just knowing where you need to kind of insert that technical uh, aspect of the uh, of the sales process or the the key messages, where should that go? And so for those who are listening today, I, I always talk to you know my clients about that when I'm coaching them on the sales funnel. And so uh, there's you'll hear the term top of funnel activities and content and bottom funnel uh, activities and content. And so a typical sales funnel, um, you know, there's many stages to it. I like to simplify it down into three primary ones. So you have awareness at the very top of the funnel. And then next is consideration. They have to consider you as being a solution to their problem. And then uh, below that is analysis. And this is where they're trying to analyze that. Yes, this is the best fit for my problem or the best solution. And this is the company that is the best one to provide that. And if they, you know, answer yes to each one of those steps, basically, then at the end, it's a, it's a yes or no, uh, basically. And if you've done a really good job, um, then then you have an opportunity of of actually converting them into a customer. And so that technical stuff often will reside in the bottom end of that funnel. So down when they're in that analysis stage. And so um, it's not that the technical information and, and sales tools and everything else, you just throw them out and just focus exclusively on the benefits. It's just knowing where to place it within that conversation, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that uh, that's something that uh, I'm relatively new to to developing our own sales funnels. And uh, it's it's amazing and totally fascinating with how you can look at your business and develop a sales funnel around yeah. who, your, 
who your clients are. And I could go on for forever about that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're really embracing that part of it because yeah, that's going to be important for you as you grow. Now let's talk a little bit about Hydra survey. What is Hydra survey? What problems are you guys trying to solve? Yeah. At, at Hydra survey, uh, we measure sludge and uh, sometimes that sounds a little bit odd, but uh, yeah. We, we do it in water and wastewater treatment ponds to help our clients prepare for remediation. And so uh, water and wastewater ponds, uh, they're designed to hold a certain amount of sediment and sludge, and it's part of their ability to treat water and wastewater. And so eventually these ponds need to be remediated. And uh, we go in and we tell our clients how much uh, sludge they have there and uh, what it's made of. So where it can go in terms of landfills or land application. Um, and then we uh, act as quality control throughout the remediation project. So we, we don't do any of the actual dredging or remediation, um, but we, we're uh, more or less the, the quality control. And I, I like to use the analogy um, of pouring concrete. When you, when you pour concrete in a building, you often need uh, a concrete tester to make sure that the concrete you receive is the right strength for your building. And so we're very much like the concrete testers of the wastewater lagoon world. Uh, we go in, we do all the planning for our clients and get them ready. And uh, they hire a contractor, we manage the contractors um, basically quality throughout the project and the uh, project gets done and everybody's happy. Excellent. So in terms of clients, then I would imagine a lot of municipalities would be um, your clients with the wastewater management treatment centers and so on. Uh, yeah. Oil and gas, is that another area yeah. and maybe mining and, and that? Absolutely. Yeah, there's yeah. there's actually a lot, a lot of ponds and more ponds than I even ever imagined there were. So municipalities are a, a big part of our business. Uh, they have uh, wastewater lagoons, which are also called sewage lagoons. So we do a lot of really uh, gnarly ponds that nobody else will touch with a, a 10 foot pole. Uh, we also do a lot of oil and gas stuff. Uh, we do mines, uh, ponds at mines like tailings ponds, um, any type of chemical processing plant. Uh, we do a lot of food plants. We also do raw water holding ponds, which is essentially the first step before uh, water that's treated to drinking water and you name it. We've done some really bizarre uh, ponds too, where, um, you know, it's just totally unexpected. <laughs> So, so obviously there's a, a pretty broad market out there, big market. And so when you were working, I'd imagine in the field as an engineer in some capacity, and you decided that there was a business opportunity here, um, how did you decide that there was a business opportunity? And, uh, and, and I guess when you were assessing whether or not you wanted to jump into that and away from the employment, what was some of the thought process that you, um, I, I guess, used there? Yeah, in, in my past life, I was working as an engineer and uh, I was also a licensed commercial diver. So I was doing a lot mm -hmm. of underwater inspection work, uh, some underwater construction as well. And um, it actually came up uh, during a conversation with a friend of mine who um, he was a uh, working in, in municipal wastewater at the time. And he was describing a wastewater lagoon remediation project where they had a dredging contractor come in and clean out the pond. And uh, it was not a, not a significant project in terms of duration. I think it was like around a month or something and they had spent about a million dollars. So it was a pretty sizable uh, project for them for the, the size of municipality. And uh, I just was asking questions and I said, well, what, what did you do for quality control? Who, you know, who made sure that, you know, this was done properly? How did you budget for it? And uh, 
uh, basically they had nothing, nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, it might be a, a good, a good time to seize the opportunity and give it a go. And, uh, basically built a website. I, uh, didn't have equipment for quite a while as I built up some, some industry contacts and, uh, pulled the trigger on the equipment I needed and, uh, moved from sort of employment to self-employment and that was it. That was it. The rest is kind of history. Excellent. Well, in five years of history, I understand November yeah. 30th is uh, the five-year mark for your business. It is. It is. It's uh, super exciting, to be honest. Five years ago, I, I couldn't even imagine what it would look like to be here or even if I would be here. Um, there's been a lot of challenges along the way, as uh, you know, I, I know that you know as an entrepreneur as well. Yeah. So, and that's one of the things that, that uh, and we talked about this off air a little bit, just that valley of death at the five year kind of uh, time frame for a business. Uh, there's so many businesses, uh, 80 plus percent of them will fail in those first five years. And so if you can get through those first five years, well, now your things are going to get a little bit easier and you're going to be able to to uh, you know, find some stability within the cash flow, and you've got enough uh, existing business out there and history that you can, uh, you know, start to tap into recurring revenue streams and so on with some of these uh, recurring customers. And so things definitely get easier. Um, you alluded to some of the challenges though that you've had. So what would be some of the biggest surprises that you had when you were transitioning from? you know, the, the engineer working for somebody else to then running this business over the last five years, what, uh, what surprised you the most on this journey? Uh, one of the, the, the biggest surprises, and we, we did, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, uh, but um, it, it was that uh, at the beginning, there was a lot of, um, I guess, naysaying and sort of um, when it, when I was trying to launch the service, it's a bit of a new idea, and so I had a, a few believers, but there were a lot of uh, a lot of um, folks out there that were just kind of like, "No one's really going to pay for this. It's too expensive. It's it's not good enough." It's it's it's. Uh, there were a lot of excuses, and so that was a big struggle to to hear that a lot, especially when you know it, uh, you know, revenue was sporadic, and I was just trying everything to to you know run and grow the business and and learn as I was going. And uh, so, so that was a big surprise because I thought, you know, kind of becoming an entrepreneur, things would just sort of fall into place and they really yeah. don't. You, you have to work at everything and you have to, uh, you have to believe in yourself more than anything, even when people are like, you know, not going to believe in you or, or what your business is doing. So you, you really do have to stick to what you believe in and, and just go for it. And where does that resilience come from for you, I guess, personally? Like, how do you stay resilient through those challenges and through the naysaying and the self-doubt that creeps in? Yeah, yeah. Um, I do a few things as an entrepreneur. Um, uh, it might sound strange, but I, I like to exercise. I get yeah. a lot of clarity from uh, just being active. I try to be active daily. Although when my wife watches this, she'll be like, you're not active daily. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, I, I try to, to be active, but I, but I also realized that, um, talking to, to people is uh, a really great way to, to get through a lot of issues. Uh, so a peer group, uh, to, to bounce issues off of a peer group and also to, uh, have a, a mentor that can, can really uh, put your mind at ease for, for things that are a challenge. Um, yeah. I've had some great mentors that have really helped me to, 
um, sort of work through problems that oh, by myself, I probably would have made incorrect decisions about. Um, and so that, that was really good. And also I've learned to um, really sleep on things. If something isn't going well one day, just, just give yourself a break, sleep on it and come back the next day. Let your mind yeah. get some clarity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of what I do, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I think the, the exercising is uh, something that a lot of entrepreneurs uh, do, right? It's, whether it's, uh, you, you know, mindfulness exercises where you're, you know, doing some meditation or something like that, or if it's physical, I find the physical uh, exercise is the way for me to really uh, collect my thoughts as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. And, and I'm, uh, I, I think that, one of the things as entrepreneurs that we really have to be aware of is that our bodies, uh, as long you, you know, play a big role in how we can function. And so, if we're not healthy and and you know, exercising, doing other things that are going to help us with our overall health, um, I think you're going to see it really uh, show up in the health of your business as well. So, uh, entrepreneurs Absolutely. definitely need to focus on that. I think more than the general population does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we rely on everything like uh, th there still is the odd occasion when I uh, have to be active in the field and I, I do a lot of traveling for work for meetings and, and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. And uh, so without a, a healthy body, I'm, I'm useless to, to myself and the company. And uh, yeah. I think without a, a healthy body, you, you start to lose that healthy mind too. Yeah, most definitely. So I'm, I'm curious, like, as you've gone on this journey, you talked a little bit about mentorship. Um, but what about inspiration? Where do you find your inspiration to, you know, keep doing the things that you're doing to keep, um, you know, getting up every day or, or every time you get knocked down, or you get that gut punch, as we all uh, have from time to time, what inspires you, I guess, um, on an ongoing basis? I, I get inspiration. Um, uh, uh, really like a big part of it is from, from my, my close family. Um, mm. and, uh, I, I get uh, inspiration from them because I, I see running my business as, um, uh, sort of, a, a, a way for, for us to, um, you know, achieve, um, I don't want to say a certain lifestyle, but just, um, sort of our have our, our own our, it would be our own definition of freedom and yeah. um, our own ability to to um, grow in the business and so uh, I get a lot of inspiration from them um, I also get a lot of inspiration from uh, just just kind of looking at the goals that I've set for the business so I, I do have some pretty pretty firm goals that I, I am trying to achieve and uh, so I, I look to that um, and try to, to, to just draw inspiration from where, where I'm trying to go. And yeah, th those would be, I think my biggest, my biggest um, points of inspiration. Yeah. So you had mentioned something and you, you framed it very specifically there in the response. And that was the uh, definition of freedom. So that is something that inspires you is to try to achieve that your specific definition of freedom. What, yeah. what is your definition of freedom? If I yeah be so uh, yeah ask. absolutely I I think it's uh, really important to talk about uh, things like this as well. It's uh, uh, freedom for for me is um, just being able to to guide uh, my own ship to trim the sails as I want and uh, uh, to sort of set the the path of my life the the way that I want it and and the way that yeah. is in my family's best interest and so. Um, 
uh, I think that's where I really uh, uh, I see I see freedom and is that yeah, I work very hard every day and sometimes I'm like geez it'd be a lot better if I was working nine to five instead of 14 hour days sometimes but um, yeah. uh, th there's also some some uh, goals and benefits uh, that are sort of beyond that that, that give me the freedom like uh, uh, for example we, we talked about exercise I know that you know, a lot of times after lunch, I'm kind of useless. And so I will just leave and I'll go and exercise and I'll use that, that zone of, for lack of a better term, uselessness to, to go and exercise and then come back for a few hours, really refreshed and, and ready to give it my all again. Yeah. Um, and so th those types of freedoms that uh, you don't, don't always have when you're um, maybe in a, in a nine to five. Yeah. Unless you're working for Google or something, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the other thing that I wanted to, just when you were talking before we started recording a little bit about some of your uh, plans um, and some of your desires in terms of growth and where you see the growth being. And so you were mentioning the U.S. as an area that you're trying to focus on as well. And so talk to me a little bit about why that's a target for you. And then what are some of the unique challenges that you're finding going south of the border versus uh, expanding uh, north of the border here in Canada? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been sort of part of my, uh, my, my vision and strategy for uh, since around COVID. We, we actually, um, we had some, some projects that were, were in the books just before COVID hit. And um, uh, at the time, the way we were executing or planning to execute the projects was uh, sending workforce south of the border and COVID made that a little bit more difficult and certainly more costly. And so the clients were not in a, a massive panic to have the work done. And so we kind of just put them on hold. And so finally this year, we're able to revisit. Um, and so I guess I guess going back to where, where you were asking me about why the U.S. market. Um, well, for us, uh, the, US, the U.S. water, wastewater market is is probably a little bit bigger than 10 times the size of Canada. So yeah. there's um, potentially significant growth for us. Um, so we're able to sort of, um, we, we sort of have two things that happen. We have a field services portion of what we do where we collect a pile of data in the field. Um, that we can't change. Uh, we always have to have people going in the field. Uh, we also have a lot of data processing that happens behind the scenes in the office here. And so one thing that's nice about doing a bit more work in the US is that we can grow our data processing side here in Canada because all the data will just come north of the border, uh, which is nice. We get to more employ more people here uh, in Edmonton. And uh, yeah, and so I guess what we're, we're looking at is just trying to slowly uh, grow in the US. And to do that, we're using a um, basically a, a subcontracting partner to provide the field services for us using our methodology to um, conduct our sludge surveys south of the border. Um, and so we're, we're taking the uh, uh, crawl, walk, run approach here. So we're just dipping our toes in uh, one location at a time to just better understand the market and uh, the nuances of each location, because mm -hmm. uh, we, we've already seen that doing business in the US is like night and day in terms of uh, what it's like to do business in Canada. And so we wanna make sure we're not, um, uh, overstepping our reach, over committing to things. Uh, we want to grow um, relatively organically so we don't, um, you know, kill ourselves in one year. Yeah. Um, 
And that, that's super challenging. And it's also extremely costly to, to do anything south of the border, especially provide a service. Um, and so we're doing a lot of uh, work now uh, with our accountants to make sure that we have everything in line with the IRS and that we're not uh, yeah. doing anything incorrectly there so that we don't get any sort of ban or anything <laughs> from going and doing work in the US. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not even sure if that answered your question anymore. Yeah, well, I, well, just in terms of challenges, yeah, definitely like some of those um, legal uh, consequences too, because it's such a litigious uh, country, right? I'd imagine yes. there must be some extra considerations that you have there or your professional, um, I guess, insurance and stuff, does that cover you uh, equally south of the border is what it is here, or do you have to do something different in that regard? Yeah, yeah, we do carry uh, we do carry insurance for U.S. operations, um, uh, and, and so it's it's less of the the uh, sort of general liability side, and more so on the um, errors and emissions side, the consulting side of things. So yeah. We do carry that. That's that is uh, extremely important. We've had a, a ton of legal advice from uh, U.S. business attorneys and uh, U.S. immigration attorneys to make sure that. You know, when we do cross the border, which I have a few times just to, to have meetings and stuff that, you know, I'm, I'm getting across okay and not being too held up. And uh, uh, yeah, so there, there's a ton to consider. So any new entrepreneurs that are, are thinking about it, um, I do recommend, uh, you know, talking to a mentor if you've got that or even reaching out to like uh, the trade commissioner because there's a ton of folks at the trade commissioner uh, service here, here in Edmonton even that um, can, can answer a lot of questions for you. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many nuances, right? And this is one of the things that I think that a lot of new entrepreneurs don't even think about. They don't consider it and they start start hustling south of the border as well, especially right now where there's such a, a big um, exchange advantage, right? So if you can be paying for a lot of the inputs or a lot of the manpower in Canadian dollars and be invoicing in US dollars, you can carve out a little bit better margin. And so, so yeah, it's very tempting, but at the same time, there are some perils that you have to uh, be aware of, all right? And be careful to have around. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Those margins can, can get eaten up real quick in legal fees and uh, <laughs> accounting fees. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, one of the things that you were, uh, when you were talking, I was just noted down here as a, as a follow-up question, because I, I think that you were talking about just having a really clear vision as to what it is that you want to achieve. Right. And so um, some of that uh, business planning and, and uh, you know, forward looking uh, strategy that you've been working on. I'm curious, what have you identified as being some of the biggest risks uh, to achieving that vision? And then the follow-up to that would be, how do you plan on overcoming those risks or, or mitigating them? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, I think uh, I will jump back a little bit to um, to sort of uh, qualify that uh, I didn't always have a strategy for the business. I, when I started it, it was just kind of like, oh, you know, let's just see what happens today. Let's try these phone calls and send these emails and hopefully things will fall into place. And as I started to learn, I realized that like without a strategy, you're, you're never going to achieve um, the goals you set out. You, you really have to almost work backwards from your goals with a strategy. Yeah. And so achieving some of, of my goals meant, um, building a, a fairly robust strategy and actually creating a, uh, a roadmap that not only myself, but everyone in the business can, can follow so that we all come to the same 
uh, end result. And, and it's not just, uh, you know, me or, or somebody trying to uh, do a whole bunch of extra work that nobody else is, is um, maybe contributing towards. So uh, I guess for me, building my strategy was really identifying, uh, you know, wh where I wanted to be and then trying to figure out, well, you know, how is this even going to be possible in a few years time? What, what really big things are going to mean that, you know, this business is going to be at this um, point in, in five years. And I started to realize that like we, we had to providing the service that we were is, is maybe not likely going to get us there. It might take us a bit longer. Um, and so I really formed strategy around process, um, process improvements and process efficiencies. So we took everything that happens in the office and we broke it down, made it super efficient. We wrote um, like some of our own scripts and codes to make uh, the processing we do uh, automated um, so we could kind of double up. Um, we made our training programs more robust so that when we bring in seasonal staff, they can really, um, you know, jump in and, you know, get going right away and not have too much support in terms of uh, handholding during training. And then I realized that beyond that, we had to sort of uh, increase the, the, the services we're providing. And I didn't want to uh, get away from, you know, just, just tr trying to, I guess, for lack of a better term, jump into a red ocean and compete with another company that's already providing a similar service. I wanted to stick to the niche that we had. And so I looked towards um, innovation to really um, see that that could be a way that we really grow the business. So we're, we're fortunate now that we don't have a, a very much competition and, you know, maybe I'm tooting our horn here a little bit, but we are the best in the industry in, in, in Canada, especially and upcoming in the U S but it won't stay that way for long. And so uh, what I found was that uh, if we could, we could innovate a little bit in terms of our process, we could probably add um, more services that are complementary, And so then grow the business, um, maybe not exponentially, but faster than just providing the same service and trying to, to, to grow that. Yeah. It's a great strategy. I love it. And yeah, definitely when you're, when you're in a marketplace that you don't have a lot of competition, it's all about grabbing that market share as quickly as you can. Right. But still be able to manage that growth, which is always the challenge. Uh, and you alluded to that earlier on, right? Because it's one of the things about rapid growth is that it takes cash flow to fuel that and that usually the cash flow is a little bit lagging on as you're going out there and doing the work and so it's that balancing act on that part of it that you just have to be so careful of um how do you manage that aspect of it how how are you um you know keeping an eye on the cash flow aspect and still enabling the the growth fueling that you want to have yeah, yeah, that that is something that I find it's super challenging, even you know, in year five here. Um, the way I, I do manage that, and and we have a very um, seasonal business model, so we make the vast majority of our revenue in, in seven or eight months of the year, and so we've got you know four or five months where revenue drops off, and so cash flow um, it can be quite scary. You know, you might think, yeah, oh, things are great, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're kind of in the red for a few months. And so what I learned early on was to just have, um, well, to, to know very well my operating expenses um, and then try to project, you know, if we are going to grow this much this year, we're going to need this much extra cash to manage our cost of goods sold uh, as an increase and 
just make sure that that money was in the bank. So not uh, spending it on this maybe shiny new piece of equipment that I thought might help us a little bit or, or investing too much in um, this new service before it was really up and running and drawing a lot of um, customers in. So it was really, I guess, having that nest egg in the bank to say, we're going to make it through next year, even if we get $0 in sales. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to work really hard to grow those sales. So it's, it, it takes away, um, I guess, having, uh, because our cash flow is odd, having that um, nest egg of cash in the company, we can really um, not fret, I guess, um, year over year. And we can then choose to say, hey, should we invest it in this? Or that, and what is a safe amount um, to invest in growth? Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So, one thing that I often ask people is to reflect back, you know, on that earlier uh, five years ago, I guess, when you were first starting the business. And so, if you could write your, you know, younger self, so the, Andrew, uh, five years ago, uh, a letter. What would be in that letter? What would you write yourself? Uh, this is something that I that I actually do. I, I do. I write. Oh, I write really? letters. I write letters, and then down the road, I read them, and they're often ridiculous oh, and so funny cool. and, and surprising. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing it for years now. I'm not sure why, but uh, it's a uh, it's it's kind of a funny thing to to do. But um, very cool. If if I could actually send a letter back in time now um, to to myself, um, I would I would tell myself to to just don't don't just erase any sort of imposter syndrome you might find. Like mm. if, you, if you don't feel uh, like you're, you're adequate or you don't feel like you're, you're doing good enough or you're doing enough for, for your clients or, or um, just get, get that out of your head and uh, just do your best and don't, don't let that overcome you because in the next five years, you're going to see constant roller coaster and probably for five years after that you're going to see a constant <laughs> roller coaster of emotions and uh you have to put that uh some of those behind you yeah you know what and it, this is the thing is it just never never ends i think that's a really good uh lesson that all of us entrepreneurs really have to take to heart because i'm uh we just completed our 11th year last month and so after 11 years it's still there i, I don't know i think you probably have to uh, you know, be quite egotistical and 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 quite self-centered in order to not have that imposter syndrome creep up, regardless of how long you've been doing what you're doing. Because when it comes to entrepreneurship, like there's just so many things that you you can't know everything, every aspect of the business and the industry, and then on top of that, just being a business owner and and running the business and the leadership and management management and so on and then all the strategy and, and stuff like it's just it's impossible and so you're always going to bump into things that you know are either new or things that you have not mastered the skills yet and uh and sure that might make us feel like imposters but at the end of the day we can just do our best at it and uh, take one day at a time right you're you're so right like uh there's just so much that you you almost need to be an expert in as an entrepreneur, and it it's it's it can be overwhelming. And actually, I kind of want to ask you what, um, you know, what what do you do to 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 feel to to not feel that? Is there something specific that that you do? Yeah, I don't think this is allowed. I think you're you're supposed to turn the <laughs> the tables on the host, are you? Just um, one question. <laughs> 
that that's a really good question. Um, and so I think for me, I don't know if there's a single thing that I do. I think it's a little bit more around the mindfulness part of it, like really um, trying to ensure that my mindset is correct. And so when those times come up, when I do feel that, it's about sitting and reflecting on all the things that I'm doing right, the things that I am mastering, the, the things that, um, you know, that, uh, that I, I seem to have maybe a little bit of an advantage of or in or, you know, my superpower, so to speak, right? If, if I can focus in those things, then the things that I'm not mastering tend to, uh, you know, fade a little bit more. And so they become less of a worry. And I think that's just mindset. It's just really focusing on the good. Um, and, um, and, and the, the also having confidence that if things will work their way out, right? Like there will be solutions if you're open to it and really looking at the problem from different, different angles, if you can leaning on your team of experts that you might have surrounding yourself with them. And, and I guess being okay too, with just the, the fact that you're never going to be the master of everything in your business. It's just not the reality. You want to hire people who are smarter than you, more talented and have those expert expertise in the different areas that you need, uh, whether that's within the business or the stuff uh, on the business, right? So the financial people that you need, the accountants and and planners and so on, and or the HR people and, and whatnot. So I, I think that would be probably my my answer to that, which is pretty broad. It's not a very specific thing, but uh, but yeah, it's it's one of the things that I constantly am working on. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thanks. And that, that's that was for me. I kind of slipped that in there so I could take away something <laughs> important. Yeah, yeah, not a problem at all. Well, I I appreciate you taking the time today and putting me a bit on a hot seat. So that was uh, that was a surprise. And and uh, yeah, and I hope everybody who is listening enjoyed this episode. And if you're interested in the archives, head over to AmplifyYourBusiness.ca, and that's where you're going to find all the past um, episodes that we've done the interviews with entrepreneurs just like Andrew. So Andrew, if somebody wanted to connect with you though, or learn more about HydroSurvey, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, yeah, they can uh, check out HydroSurvey on LinkedIn. Uh, they can check out HydroSurvey's website. So HydroSurvey.ca, you can just Google sludge survey. Uh, I think if you even just Google sludge, we come up. <laughs> and uh, if they, if you want to, um, you can always drop me an email at Andrew at HydroSurvey.ca and I'd be more than happy to, to chat. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Really appreciate it. And I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Until next time, everybody have a prosperous day.